0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Gonna be talking today about the bark of Peter, which of course is a reference to the Holy Catholic Church. Gonna look at the uh, at the church herself, at uh, the way the church understands herself or always has, um, the history of the church uh, later on and also maybe look at some current events regarding the church in the United States today. All of which relates to the readings that began this week uh, in the extraordinary form, the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. Pardon me. So let's just dive right in with the uh, epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Brethren, I reckon that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come that shall be revealed in us. For the expectation of the creature... Waiteth for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that made it subject, in hope. Because the creature also itself shall be delivered from the servitude of corruption, into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that every creature groaneth and travaileth in pain, even till now. And not only it, but ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption of the sons of God, the redemption of our body in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just quickly, there is no better uh, consolation, this is what St. Paul is telling us, under crosses and afflictions, than the thought that all the troubles of this world are not to be compared with the glory to come. That there is, in fact, no comparison. At, At this present momentary, uh, uh, this moment, this the, the light of our tribulation works, uh, as he would say, above measure exceedingly at an eternal weight of glory, right? That's from uh, Corinthians. And therefore, uh, commenting on this passage, the Venerable Bede, back in the Middle Ages, he said, if we had to bear for a while the pains of hell, it would not appear so hard if thereby we might merit to see Christ in his glory and be added to his saints. I reckon the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. An important thing to keep in mind uh, in our own day and age, especially. And now on to the gospel for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, which is taken from Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses. And this passage of the scripture is where we get the term, the bark of Peter. Bark meaning boat or ship. And we have it as an... uh, Figure of the church herself. So, the Holy Gospel according to Luke, at that time, when the multitudes pressed upon Jesus to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesareth, and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And going into one of the ships that was Simon's, that is Peter, he desired him to draw back a little from the land. And sitting, he taught the multitudes out of the ship. Now, when he had ceased to speak, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft, right? A catch. And Simon answering him said, master, we have labored all the night and have taken nothing. But at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a very great multitude of fishes and their net broke. And they beckoned to their partners that were in the other ship that they should come and help them and they came and filled both the ships so that they were almost sinking, which, when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was wholly astonished, and all that were with him, at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so were also James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were Simon's partners. And Jesus Jesus saith to Simon, Fear not, from henceforth, Thou shalt catch men, and having brought their ships to land, leaving all things, they followed him. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. So, why did our Lord choose to uh, teach the multitude out of the bark of Peter, the boat of Peter? Well, as the ship is a figure of the church, it's uh, significant. You know, it's symbolic of. The fact that we receive true doctrine from the church only of which Peter is the head, right? It's it's Peter's boat. And amidst all the storms uh, of the the many years, uh, Jesus has preserved and will preserve this ship of the church until the end of time. And Peter yet stands at the helm in an unbroken line of his successors. And Jesus still teaches from the ship the same doctrines as before. Uh, And he does that primarily through the bishops and priests. Uh, who are the successors, uh, the bishops are the successors of Peter and the apostles, Pope and the bishops, and their assistants, uh, the priests. And whoever hears them, hears him. And so we should listen to the teaching of the church with uh, with obedience, with docility, with willingness. And um, keeping in mind, of course, that Jesus also told us that in the church there would always be weeds among the wheat and wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's why he said, my sheep know my voice, because at the faithful, we recognize that which is really Catholic and that which is maybe not so much, you know, and that our obedience to the bishops then is predicated on their obedience to the deposit of faith. Now, what else do we learn from this miracle? Well, we see the the divinity of our Lord, of course, because this great catch of fish uh, that he procured for Simon and the disciples shows that he's Lord over nature. That he caused the fish, uh, you know, they obeyed his will and gathered together in this unlikely place. You know, if you've done any fishing that, you know, Peter says we fished all night and nighttime early in the morning, um, right at sundown overnight. Those are the best times to fish. In fact, most places they they forbid you to fish at night because the fishing is so good at that time. Also in the shallows where the fish gather, that's to go out into the deep in the middle of the day where the fish are, are way down you know, escaping from the heat of the sun, you, could, you wouldn't expect to catch anything. And instead, uh, they caught so many fish that their nets were breaking, all right? And the object of that miracle, and, and remembering that he worked this miracle just for Peter and, and the apostles. Uh, well, like all the miracles, of course, it was meant to, to increase and confirm their faith in, in Jesus. But it was also meant to prepare them, especially St. Peter, for the office of apostle, which was, of course, you know, typified by this miracle. It's as Jesus meant to say, look, just as now you set out into sea and cast out your nets and caught all these fish, you know, you were going to go do the same thing um, to go into the world with the, the, the net of my doctrine and to catch up the souls of men, right? And that you will have as great a success doing that as you just had with your nets bringing in uh, hundreds of fish. You're going to bring in thousands of souls into the kingdom of God. And so it, you know, it's a type of the apostolic work of the Church of Christ. So the sea is the world, the fish are men living in the world, the bark is the church, and the helmsman is Peter and his successors. They steer the bark with the help of uh, the companions, right, the apostles and their successors, the bishops, and they cast their net by preaching the doctrine of Christ and by holy baptism receive into the church those who believe. And our Lord Jesus Christ is still in the bark of Peter, which is to say in the Catholic Church. So ultimately, it's Christ who teaches us and who forgives our sins and brings us to salvation through his church. You know, the danger of sinking that threatened Peter's little boat when they brought aboard all those fish foreshadows how the church would be beset by many perils and persecutions. The hole in the net through which many fish escaped shows that many souls would be lost through schism and heresy. And then that first draft, that first catch that Peter made as a fisher of men on the day of Pentecost was extraordinary. 3,000 baptized that day. And then after his second discourse where he cured the lame man, um, the number of baptized was 5,000. The conversion of the world by these ignorant fishermen was one of the great miracles of God. And to this day, Peter's successor sends um you know uh, fishermen into all parts of the world we're still uh you know the, the catholic church is everywhere and uh it is the pope that gives you know the universal power and jurisdiction to the bishops and priests and missionaries that go and teach the truth of christ and sanctify souls through the sacraments also we see here the, the importance of listening to the word of god which um which the crowd did you know uh, industry, right? They have toiled all night. Industry is a virtue and sloth is a sin. And in all our occupations we should bear in mind the blessing of God, that nothing can prosper without God's blessing. See, they were out all night and caught nothing, but when Jesus is in the boat, things changed. We also see that the many virtues of Saint Peter in this story, his faith, right, because he says we, we worked all night and caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll do it. Right? He knew that he he wouldn't go out in vain if he did what the Lord said. So obedience, also faith, humility. Depart from me for I'm a sinful man, he says. He humbled himself and our Lord exalted him, calling him before the others to be a fisher of men. And then of course, number four, the love of Christ because Peter and James and John left everything. They left their livelihoods, their home and family to follow Jesus. You know, that, that great catch a fish, I think, was to assure them that their labors to save souls would uh, also be crowned with great success, and that after laboring all night without catching anything, they should take in so many fish uh, at the word of Jesus. That was a lesson that they never forgot, that they could work with blessing and success only by relying not on their own skill, not on their own pains, But only on the might and the blessing of the lord so we understand through this miracle that that nothing has any real value before god that's done just from natural inclination or done for human respect but our labors are are only with merit be it they're undertaken in the name of god the following of christ is a way of virtue and perfection and we find that following in the bark of peter which we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the Church, and what is the Church exactly? What is the bark of Peter? That and more when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. There are To date, I think something in excess of 40,000 Christian denominations, non-Catholic Christian denominations. And you can look at them, you know, you look at the the Catholic Church, and you look at these various other bodies and who founded them and when they were founded, and and this comparative list reveals a fact that none of the the denominations uh, can ever be the true church that was founded by Christ. The Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ in Jerusalem in 33 AD, and then you have the the Orthodox schism in 1054, and then you have Protestantism in 1517, and on down the list all the way to you know Joseph Smith in 1830s, starting Mormonism, and Mary Baker Eddy starting the you know Christian Scientists in Massachusetts in the 1800s, and uh, all the way to Chuck Smith starting Calvary Chapel here in California back in the 60s. Uh, none of them can be the one true church that we read about in Scripture. Also, it's well known that uh, many non-Catholics convert to Catholicism on their deathbed. right? You, you've heard about it, some of them famously. Um, but have you ever read about some Catholic who at the hour of his death denies his faith and says, oh, I want to be a Mormon, or, you know, quick, quick, uh, I, I need to be, you know, become part of this other church. I need to convert to this church. No. And why is that? Well, I think that um, Philip Melanchthon can give us uh, some insight. Melanchthon was a collaborator with Luther. In fact, he was probably the first serious systematic theologian of Protestantism. And uh, his own elderly mother wrote to him and, and asked if she was obliged to join this new religion right, that her son was so vigorously defending, and he wrote back an interesting reply. He said to his mother, "Um, the Protestant faith is the best faith to live in, but the Catholic faith is the best one to die in, knowing that she was facing her imminent end. So our question is, what is the church? And, uh, you know, for for many years, the classic catechism answer was the Church is the congregation of all baptized persons, united in the same true faith, with the same sacrifice, the same sacraments, under the authority of the Supreme Pontiff and the bishops in communion with him. Uh, In fact, up till Vatican II, the Church, um, even just considered as a visible uh, entity, was considered by the church and defined by the church as the perfect society, the perfect religious body. And why should that be? Well, precisely because uh, the church was founded by God, and all of the members are subject to the same authority. They have the same uh, religious doctrines. They live a common religious life, and uh, and they um, use the same means of grace, which is to say the seven sacraments. The Catholics were, in fact, united. I mean, the unity was uh, one of the four marks of the Church, one of the great ones here. In fact, prior to the Enlightenment and, um, you know, in pre-modern times, we talk about the separation of Church and State, and that would have been, uh, you know, like I say, pre-Enlightenment, that would have been an an alien concept. It wasn't the Church versus the State. It It was everybody, you know, in medieval Christendom, everybody was Catholic. So society was really di- divided up into into the teaching church, if you will, and the hearing church. it's 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 religious and secular. Um, the idea that that Christ had laid down powers and duties for this uh, these distinctions in the church. So you've got the bishops, the pope, uh, the priests who compose this teaching church, and then the faithful who believe and obey are admitted into membership, uh, into the church through the sacrament of baptism, they compose the hearing church. Um, I've just, I've been reading this book, uh, it is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion by Scott Hahn and Brandon McGinley. And I hope to have Mr. McGinley on before the summer is out on this program to talk about it. Cause it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite fascinating. But the point is that the, the Catholic church has been enabled to lead men to salvation enabled by God. Uh, Second Vatican Council referred to the Church as the universal sacrament of salvation. The true Church alone is enabled to lead men. And how is that? Well, the the answer is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son sent uh, the Holy Ghost to dwell in the Church. And it is the indwelling of the Spirit, it's the indwelling of the Holy Ghost that enables the Church to teach, govern, and sanctify in the name of Christ. Right, it's cooperation with that spirit. And just a few weeks ago, we had Pentecost. We talked at length on uh, this program about how the Holy Ghost came down on the apostles to enlighten and strengthen and sanctify them precisely so that they could preach the gospel and spread the church all over the world. On the Feast of Pentecost, um, we celebrate um, this uh, a mystery that's that's forever renewed in the church. It's a remembrance of the Holy Spirit coming uh, to dwell in the church. And that, like I say, he, he dwells in the church, he dwells in our souls. That is the the, the mystery of the indwelling of God. It's the, it's the reign of God, right? It's the kingdom of God that is not of this world, the kingdom that he says in Luke's gospel that is within us and among us. Um, and that was the great message of Our Lady of America was to appreciate and to be devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Trinity in our souls. And I think it was very timely. You know, she, Our Lady of America, appeared um, in the late 50s, right? During the, the time when they were building the, the, the national shrine in Washington, D.C. And she came to tell us, uh, very specifically, uh, to be devoted to that indwelling, because that's something that cannot be taken away from us. And, you know, I, mean, I don't think anybody in the 1950s could see it coming, but it was a message that I think is really important for us today. The Holy Ghost preserves the Church from error. In times of danger, he raises up defenders of doctrine, right? You know, we look at our history of St. Athanasius uh, in the time of the uh, Arian heresy, or Gregory the Seventh during what was called the Great Disorder, when he really kind of asserted the papal primacy and, and uh, restored discipline in the 11th century there, St. Dominic during the time of the Albigensian heresy, and, and so on. <clears throat> I think the big thing that we are combating today is indifference, and it's, and it, it is, it's different, <laughs> no pun intended, than, than some of these previous heresies, because what we have now is people saying, well, aren't all religions the same? And of course, no, of course not. That, that would mean that truth and error are the same that would mean that uh, faith and unbelief are the same. It's a logical contradiction. God's not divided. He only revealed one religion, and you either believe that religion or you don't. Jesus said, there's no middle way. Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. And let me put it this way. Anything that's not the whole truth is not the truth. I say that one time, again, anything... That is not the whole truth is not the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. was the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John fourteen six. Not a way, not one way among many, not the preferred way, the only way. Nobody would say that, that, that glass is as good as diamonds or that brass is as good as gold or that an imitation is as good as the original. How much more unreasonable to claim that the, uh, the, the, the religion established by man is as good as the one that was founded by the incarnate God. This is no nonsense Catholic. That doesn't make sense. All right, From the very beginning of mankind, there was this true religion. From the time of Adam. The promise of a Redeemer was made to Adam and Eve right there in the Garden of Eden. And it was, this true religion was preserved by the patriarchs and the prophets and the others chosen by God uh, amongst them, um, you know, to keep that knowledge that there was a promise of a Redeemer alive and what we call the chosen people, right? This is before the coming of Christ, the, the chosen people, the Jews, um, did not have a universal religion. It was specific to the one people, and the other nations degenerated into, into idol worship and the worship of false gods. And in spite of the, of the imperfections of the old religion uh, and the practice of it uh, preserved among the Jews, it was in fact the true religion, the one true religion, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is God, and, and uh, it, it foreshadowed the coming of the perfect religion that would be established by that promised Redeemer, by Jesus Christ. Who then fulfilled right I've come not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill and to to replace the old covenant with the new and everlasting covenant, so it's absurd to to assume that God doesn't care whether men denounce his son as an impostor and a blasphemer or if they worship him as God I mean that's the fundamental question: Why would Christ and after him the apostles and after them a whole long line of believers? up to and including my patron saint, Sir Thomas More, and beyond, uh, uh, why would they have suffered so much? Why resist persecution so, so firmly if it wasn't important what we believe? Why would the apostle say in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved? Now, how do we know that the Catholic Church is uh, the, the, the one true church? And it's because only the Catholic Church possesses the four marks of the Church. And this, of course, is um, something that's very fundamental to Catholic teaching. It's in the Apostles' Creed. Every time you say the Rosary, you proclaim this truth. We proclaim this truth at every Mass when we say the Nicene Creed, even uh, you know, at the Latin Mass. Unum Sanctum Catholicum et Apostolicum Ecclesium. One holy Catholic and apostolic Church. Right? It is the, the unity, the holiness, the Catholicity and the aposto- and the apostolicity, which we've gone over on this program before. I'm just going to uh, tell us, though, uh, to segue into the next uh, uh, section, which is going to be about the history of the church, that that very history gives us the evidence of this miraculous strength and um, permanence and immutability, that unchangeableness that um, showed the world that the Catholic Church is under the special protection of God. And the Catholic Church has proved itself indestructible for nearly 2,000 years um, against every variety of enemies, very formidable enemies, from without uh, you know, attacking and persecuting the Church, and of course from schism and heresy from within you know, from within our own ranks, from within our own leadership, and that goes on, and yet the church goes on. In spite of corruption and persecution, the combined forces of error and evil, the Catholic Church has continued to live and to carry out its purpose as our founder, our Lord Jesus Christ, promised. That indestructibility, the indefectibility of the church has been proven by history. That alone, I think, is is enough to mark the church as divine, because only God could have preserved it so long considering the, the way that we've dropped the ball so often in our governance and our sanctity. But the church is the only one that's proved itself an exception to the law of decay and death. It watched the birth and the decay of every government on earth for 2,000 years, and every it survived every attack arising again as the perfect bride of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next section. When we come back, lots more No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about the history of the Church. We spent a lot of time talking about doctrines and dogmas and and Catholic practice, and that's right and good. But I wanted to take a moment uh, before we talk about uh, what's going on in the Church today in the United States to look at our history. Uh, You look at the first 400 years of the Church. That's where Christ establishes the Church. The, The apostles go to carry out his command to teach all nations to make disciples of them, to baptize all nations. And, uh, and they go all throughout the various countries, appointing bishops and priests, sanctifying and ministering to the faithful, and persevering in spite of persecution until finally they sealed their fate in martyrdom. Saints Peter and Paul were particularly interested in the conversion of the Roman Empire, which was the mightiest and most wicked empire in that day. You know, the, the morals of the Romans were extremely debased. I mean, they had lots of issues with things like pornography and prostitution and uh, homosexuality. And, oh, okay, it sounded too familiar to make a good comparison. But <laughs> Imperial Rome um, was spreading evil, you know, uh, through not the least the worship of tens of thousands of gods. Many of them worshiped precisely for their... Um, immorality. And so so close was that union of the pagan religion and the empire that to attack the religion was to be considered a traitor of Rome. Like I say, this, the idea of separation of church and state w- was not a thing. Uh, and, and for that reason, of course, the full force of the empire was set against this new religion and the Christians. But um, the fishermen didn't falter. I mean, Peter battled with his uh, all his might. He and Paul were both martyred. Others continued the battle for Christ, which lasted for nearly three hundred years, one persecution following upon another. Um, the severest being those under Nero and Diocletian, uh, and Diocletian condemned. Uh, they think um, some two million Christians were put to death, and and but the more they were persecuted, the faster the increase. Which is why Tertullian said, famously, "The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church." And then finally, in the year 313 AD, the banners of Christianity were flung out in victory when peace was granted through the Edict of Milan. And then later, Constantine the Great made Christianity the state religion in the year 324 AD. Uh, And he was led to that step when he conquered in battle, uh, after seeing in the heavens, right, the vision of the luminous cross and the words, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign, uh, thou shalt conquer. And his saintly mother, St. Saint Helena, was a Christian and had a great influence on his conversion. Now, the second hundred years, uh, before 60 years had passed, after the Edict of Milan, the barbarian invasions began. The hordes of uh, Huns and Goths and Vandals and Visigoths, numbering in the millions, uh, descended upon the, the Roman Empire. You know, they came from the north into the, the civilized European country, city after city. Uh, surrendered until Rome itself was taken and the darkness of barbarism covered the continent this is what we call the dark ages but the missionaries and teachers of the church mingled with the barbarians returned to them with them to their countries and brought light out of the darkness and so this is the time of the great missionaries like Saint Patrick uh, who converted uh, the Irish, uh, Augustine of Kent who uh, converted the English and Saint Boniface who was an Englishman that uh, converted the Germans um, the idol-worshipping Franks followed their king Clovis into the Christian fold. And uh, at the end of the second four centuries, the barbarians of um, Italy, Spain, France, Germany, England, and Ireland were all Christians, civilized, progressive, settled in peaceful cities, building churches, carrying out trade rather than uh, living on uh, rape and pillage. Then you have in the third 400 years, you see the rise of Islam, um, you know, which of course was spread by the sword. And the great part of Asia, North Africa, Spain, the islands of the Mediterranean, all were overrun and conquered uh, by Muhammad's um, followers until he even threatened France itself. And then there was a memorable nine day battle in the year 732, the Battle of Tours, where the French Christians under Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, defeated the Muslims at Tours. And stopped their incursions into France. But uh, the next century, you know, the Muslims penetrated into uh, the European um, continent. They even sacked Rome itself, even St. Peter's. And still the church carried on and finally repelled the invader. And the fall of Jerusalem into the hands of the Muslims in the 11th century gave impetus to the Crusades, during which, as we know, the Christian armies went to try and free the holy places from the Muslims, and there were seven crusades in all from 1095 to 1254, and amongst their outstanding leaders, we have uh, Godfrey de Bion, Frederick Barbarossa of Germany, Richard the Lionheart of England, and of course, the great Saint Louis of France. Now, in the fourth 400 years, the Christian rulers of Europe, um, becoming more powerful uh, started to look uh, with a uh, certain envy on the authority of the Pope. Right, So here we have the the beginnings, the percolating underlying of the idea of a separation of church and state. Although the Crusades had had good effects, many of them, uh, although they were ultimately a failure in regard to um, retaking the Holy Land. But many good things uh, came out of it. But unfortunately, they were largely material and, uh, and that with a uh, concurrent relaxation in, in um, spiritual life. And then you have the rise of, of heresies. You have Berengarius denying the real presence of Christ. You have the Greek schism, of course, uh, the great schism. The Albigensian heresy, the heresies of Wycliffe, the heresies of Jan Hus, uh, who denied the authority of the church. Finally, in the 16th century, a uh, general laxity and uh, spirit, um, and and a a spirit of revolt, culminated in open defiance against the church, and the Protestant Revolt or Protestant Reformation swept through Europe. An Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, back in 1517, made an open attack on the doctrine of indulgences. And when he was effectively refuted, uh, you know, in debate by Dr. John Eck, you know, in a public debate, it, he just became furious and um, more and more active in propagating his errors. And, be, and because his doctrines, I think, because they appeal to human vanity and weakness, he attracted many followers. It's easier to be Protestant than it is to be Catholic. And you have the German princes and others who, you know, um, had long-envied papal authority. Now they've got uh, an excuse. They threw in their lot with Luther. And the Bible was declared the sole rule of faith, and and salvation came by faith alone without um, the the, the sacraments or the church. And everybody is, um, you know, free to interpret the word of God as they please for himself. And, you know, you can see where where vicious people are going to be easily won over by a doctrine that says, well, uh, man can't help but sin, but he gets to be saved anyway that you can, as Luther said, uh, commit, you know, uh, uh, commit adultery 100 times a day and as many murders and still go to heaven, right? Once saved, always saved. And you know, th- that very idea that, that you, and then Calvin comes in with his predestination denying the, the free will and just saying, you know, making of God, essentially a monster who from the beginning of time said these people will go to heaven, these people go to hell, doesn't matter what they do. And that was pretty attractive, and the revolt spread from Germany to the other countries. You know, Calvin in Switzerland. Um, Scotland had John Knox, who uh, was the propagator of uh, Presbyterianism. and England, you have Henry VIII uh, and his desire to change wives, right, which is the, caused the Anglican Schism, and they eventually embraced the errors of the Reformation as well. Denmark, Holland, Norway, Sweden, all swept into heresy by their rulers, Okay, not by popular demand. Um, one of the great pains of the Protestant revolt came out of, uh, I mean, I should say out of the pains of the Protestant revolt, the church emerged stronger and purified. You know, We had what was called the Counter-Reformation. And I mean, Pope Pius V famously really uh, helped to reform the church um, in a sense of not changing it into something else, but restoring it into what it was meant to be. Restoring those things, that had been lost, which I think is what the church is in great need of right now. Um, Obviously, we had the the discovery of the new world by Christopher Columbus. You have the uh, Spanish and the Portuguese, especially, sending missionaries. You have, um, in the Americas, so many of the peoples here becoming Catholic that they make up, and mean more than make up, for the numbers that were lost in Europe. And then um, we have the, the last 400 years. Many in Europe returned to the church after the initial success of the Reformation. More were gained in the Americas. Um, Protestantism continued to attack the church. Paganism, which was bred from the laxity and revolt, is another enemy that uh, uh, raised its ugly head. I mean, I think it's found its worst manifestation kind of in public policy under Adolf Hitler. Right? Um, open warfare continues to go on, obviously Russia and so forth. Uh, in 1917, well, you know, in the last 400 years, we we had the, the the two world wars, and the two world wars really shipwrecked the faith of millions of people, especially in Europe. Who you know, <laughs> to see in a single lifetime not one world war but two, and to have them fought in your own backyard, and to see the appalling—I mean—the the number of casualties amongst non-combatants. You know, we, we think of the medieval times as brutal. i tell you what, the, the, the number of non-combatants killed in modern wars would have horrified the Crusaders, horrified them. The very idea that you, you know, would kill wholesale the, the people that you're supposedly fighting for. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, and it, and it shipwrecked a lot of people's faith. The numbers are, you know, in mass attendance. I think we have a tendency for, to forget because after the Second World War in, in the United States, the Church was booming, right? You got the, the John Kennedy marries Catholic, uh, Jacqueline Bouvier, and the biggest event of the year is a Catholic wedding, and Bishop Sheen's winning Emmys on TV and so forth. And then, of course, Vatican II came along. And we're going to talk next about a couple of articles that I just read about what's going on in the Catholic Church in the United States today. So let's, when we come back, uh, that and lots more right here on No Nonsense Catholic. back, No Nonsense Catholic. I read a couple of articles this week from Pat Buchanan, Patrick J. Buchanan. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, Mr. Buchanan's been around for a long time. He is a, uh, a conservative commentator, I think, in the sort of William F. Buckley mold, uh, the, that classic uh, conservative uh, and also a traditional Catholic. He's a serious commentator. He worked in the Nixon administration. He's been writing books and, and uh, providing commentary, serious commentary for decades. And he wrote a book, uh, book, an article on the 18th of June called Who's Really Killing American Democracy? And he starts off by uh, pointing out that uh, there was a a vote in the House, 30 to 1, unanimously uh, passed in the Senate, to uh, make Juneteenth a national holiday. Now, if you don't know what Juneteenth is, it is June the 19th, and it commemorates the day In 1865, when news of the Emancipation Proclamation reached Galveston, Texas. Okay, and that is where it has been celebrated uh, for some years. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed uh, by Lincoln on January the 1st of 1863. It just took a couple of years for the news to reach Texas. And that was was what was commemorated by so-called Juneteenth. The new federal holiday is going to be called Juneteenth Independence Day. And Buchanan predicts that this will be yet another source of division as, you know, some black people celebrate their special independence day while the rest of America does it a couple weeks later on the 4th of July. And he asks the, the question, why is he so pessimistic? And he brings up something. And first of I, w- I would point out, you know, I mean, why the, the left hates tradition and you know they hate the the founding and and a lot of very fundamental things about the United States these days. And why then? Why Juneteenth? I mean, it doesn't make sense to make this very very localized thing about about when the news finally reached Texas uh, about the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, so I can see why well, the people there think is well, Why would you make that a holiday? And why call it Independence Day? Right. Juneteenth Independence Day, as opposed to the July Fourth Independence Day. You know, and, and the thing is, of course, they they hate tradition, but it is a human desire uh, to to have something that's promote something that's established. You know, and not so they can say, this way they can say, oh, this is a thing that's been around for a long time. What we're not just making this up, okay? But it uh, Buchanan says it's going to be divisive. I think he's right, and he shows us his evidence. Um, in Randolph, New Jersey, the Board of Education there, um, just days before Congress acted, had named Columbus, renamed Columbus Day Indigenous Peoples Day. And they didn't realize there was going to be a huge backlash, but there was. And so they decided, well, uh, we're not going to restore Columbus Day. We're, we're, what we're going to do instead is just going to get rid of all of the holidays. If you get a day off from school, the school calendar is just going to say day off. Okay? This did not appease the people who, who continued their kerfuffle. So, you know, the school board surrendered and then punted, right, um, trying, to, trying to, to find holidays that the, that the citizens of Randolph would all celebrate together. But the point is that um, after another firestorm, the school board is, is just, re, you know, restoring all the holidays, including Columbus Day. Now, the point is, if we can't even agree on which heroes and holidays are to be celebrated, that tells us where we are. It tells us something about ourselves. And he says, it tells us whether we're really one country and one people. You know, do we still meet the designation of Joshua Jay in the, in the Federalist Papers of one united people? Does that depiction even remotely resemble America in 2021? You know, uh, Jay talked about Providence being pleased to give us this, this unity. We, don't even, we can't even agree on Providence anymore. And here you know, I'm quoting from the article, he says, We hear constant worries these days about a clear and present danger to our democracy itself. And if democracy requires as a precondition a community, a commonality of religious, cultural, social, and moral beliefs, we have to ask whether these necessary ingredients of a democracy still exist in 21st century America. And he goes on to talk about how Christmas and Easter were expunged from the public square. And how the Bible and the cross and the Ten Commandments were expelled as suddenly contradicting the Constitution, which is nonsense. And that traditional Christian teachings about you know, homosexuality, abortion, these things, which were reflected in public law, are, are now suddenly regarded as hallmarks of, of homophobia and bigotry and sexism and misogyny, which is to say moral and mental sickness, he says not only do these views on religion and morality collide but we're ever more rancorously divided on matters of history and race you know was was christopher columbus a heroic navigator and explorer who quote unquote discovered america like i said in the last segment or is he you know a, a, a genocidal maniac you know uh, monstrously imposing his religion and his race upon the indigenous peoples here you know six of the or three of the six founding fathers and most of the presidents for the first six decades of this republic were slave owners. And today you've got people that think that, that Washington and Jefferson need to be dynamited off of, uh, of Mount Rushmore. And from all of this, he says, comes a fundamental question. He says, is the left itself as its cultural and racial revolution dethrones the icons of America's past, who are still cherished by a majority? Are they irreplaceably or irreparably fracturing the national community upon which depends the survival of democracy that they profess to cherish? You know, are they themselves imperiling the political system? And he says a question needs to be put to the American left. I'm quoting now. If your adversaries in politics are indeed fascists, racists, sexists, homophobes, xenophobes, and bigots as you describe them, Why would or should such people accept and embrace your rule over them simply because you managed to rack up a plurality of ballots in an election? Free elections to decide who governs are, it is said, the central sacrament of democracy. But why should a people who are described with every synonym for deplorable not reject the politics of compromise and instead work constantly to overthrow the rule of people who so detest them? He gives us the quote from Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms that have been tried. And he asks, are both sides sticking with democracy simply for lack of an alternative? This is not a crazy person on the far right. This is a respected commentator, a serious commentator, asking the question, if, if this is what you've done to democracy, is democracy worth saving? Okay, putting a bookmark there, the other one that he did, or article he wrote, was called Will Bishops Deny Biden Communion? And it talks about how the the, uh, bishops' conference last week voted 168 to 55 to provide new guidance for receiving Holy Communion. They're going to put out a document uh, to to reiterate the Church's teaching uh, policy regarding Holy Communion. And he said, uh, um, behind this decision is the bishop's alarm that the religious practice of President Joe Biden is conveying a heretical message to the faithful. He regularly receives communion, and yet he not only supports Roe v. Wade and supports abortion, but his new uh, administration has provided ample funding for abortions. And, you know, the, the Trump era restrictions are gone now. So if this teaching document that the bishops are going to put out, he says, is consistent with traditional doctrine, which we would hope it is, he says, then there's a, a series of collisions are on the horizon. Um, for the majority of U.S. bishops who believe pro-choice Catholics should be denied, uh, politicians should be denied communion, will likely collide not only with Biden and also their fellow bishops, but also the Vatican, because Pope Francis has pretty clearly uh, tried to avert this now inevitable showdown. Uh, he says, Biden will be pressed by the media to explain how, how he can back government funding of killing the unborn and still receive communion. Now, it, you know, I think he's being optimistic. I don't think that's the case, really. I don't think the press is liable, liable to, to hold him to account to this, or they already would be. It's not like the teaching of the Church on the Holy Eucharist is a secret, okay? Um, or that we need dialogue about it, or, or documents, for that matter. That all exists. He says, Pope Francis is going to be pressed to, to, as to whether the U.S. bishops are wrong to insist that Catholic leaders um, who defied you know, this Catholic doctrine should be treated like devout Catholics. Um, you know, the, the thing is, he says, um, I, I'm going to skip down, there's a quote from Bishop Wilton Gregory of Washington, D.C., Cardinal now, Wilton Gregory. He says, the choice before us at this moment... Uh, talking about the bishops' gathering. The choice before us at this moment is whether we pursue a path of strengthening unity among ourselves or settle for creating a document that will not bring unity, but may very well further damage it. We've been talking about unity as a mark of the Church. And what unity is, you know, I mean, unity is a word that uh, Bishop Gregory, Cardinal Gregory and, and others like him, use a great deal. A lot of talk about unity. And here, presumably, he's talking about the bishops providing a a unified front, unity amongst the bishops. Well, if the unity amongst the bishops is not the unity of the church, which is that we all have the same doctrines, that we all uh, believe the same truths, that we all are being sanctified by the same sacraments, if that's not unity, then you keep using this word, I don't think it means what you think it means, right? Unity has a definition. So Buchanan asked, is perceived unity among the bishops more important than public witness to the truth that, you know, the unborn in America are being destroyed, you know, uh, at at an annual rate that exceeds the COVID COVID pandemic at its worst? Is clarity about doctrinal truth less important than the bishops, you know, uh, fraternity? There's no denying the message that bishops, uh, Biden's receiving communion gives off. You know, he's clearly saying that the being pro-abortion and funding abortions and so forth doesn't conflict with Catholic teaching. And it does. Period. Bishop Rhodes, uh, South Bend, says there's a, a special obligation of those who are in leadership because of their uh, public visibility. Like, you know, he says, I disagree with awarding someone for outstanding service to the church and society who hasn't been faithful to his obligation. You know, he said, um, Biden it was asked, what he thought about the, the, the possibility that Catholic bishops would vote to deny him communion He said, that's a private matter. I don't think it's going to happen. And you know what? He's right. They're going to put out a document that reiterates what we already all know. And I don't believe anybody's going to be held um, accountable. And there's reasons for that. Uh, largely reasons within uh, some kind of an existential crisis in the church herself and the real meaning of unity. And we're going to be talking about that. My good friends next week. Okay, so stick with us here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So great to have you along uh, on Wednesdays here, or whenever it is that you're listening, on the app or online or on your favorite uh, podcast platform. We're all over the place. Don't forget, if you can visit Virgin Most Powerful on the web at vmpr.org, we'd be happy to hear from you, and certainly we appreciate your uh, support, both your spiritual and financial support, and you can find that Donate Now button right there on bmpr.org again thanks for listening and until next time on behalf of everybody here at bmpr may god richly bless you and your family